please open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we're swiftly making our way through the book, and yet last week was uh, Exodus 1 and 2, and if you missed that message, certainly uh, uh, hit us up online, and uh, you'll be able to find that, uh, that message in the resources uh, page. Or if you are on iTunes, you can certainly go to the podcast and do a search for Emmanuel Mora, and you'll be able to find those as well. But today we're in Exodus chapter 3 uh, and chapter 4. Uh, let's pray before we go uh, to the Word together. God, we thank you. We, I thank you for that, for that song, Lord. Lord, it's so easy to reflect back and, and think about how we have wasted time, wasted moments, wasted things. And, but now that we know Jesus, Lord, we can, we can uh, sort of have a do-over. And so, God, I ask that you would help us by your grace this morning, that wherever we've been, whatever we've done, whoever we are, that we would find new life in Jesus, that he would make us new, and that we would be joyful in it, Lord. Uh, Lord, would you help us uh, in this time to study your word, and not just to know it, but to know Jesus. And it's in his great name that I ask this. Amen. Well, if you were here on Easter, you heard uh, my pathetic story about how I took my first piano lesson at the age of 22, and it didn't go very well. It was a terrible experience for both me and my teacher. It ended up being the lowest grade that I've ever received in any of my education, uh, but I was a music education major. I needed uh, the class in order to graduate, but the fact that I couldn't play piano very proficiently was not only a huge insufficient, uh, insufficiency for me, it was also an insecurity for me as well. I felt like I didn't have the skills that were necessary in order to go into the classroom and do what I needed to do as a teacher. It would require me to play the parts of my choir. And I knew that I could conduct, I knew that I could lead, uh, fairly well, but this, this piano aspect of it was a huge handicap for me. And then there was this job opening in this small little town outside of Mankato called St. Clair. And uh, I, I felt obligated to apply because we had just gotten married. Um, I was working a minimum wage job. Julie was going into grad school. And though I really I uh, didn't want to. I applied for the job. And in all honesty, I, I remember hoping that I wouldn't get it and that the Lord would just provide that sort of income for me in sort of a, a, a different, different way. And I got an interview, and it went really well. And I remember praying to the Lord, saying, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not equipped to do this. And then I got a job offer. And, uh, and I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, I, I, I think I can be excited about this. And if you really want me to do this, then you're going to have to provide some help for me. Because this is something that I cannot do uh, on, on my own. And a week before school started, which was the week after I had gotten hired, um, uh, someone from the administration gave me a number of a gal who had accompanied for the school in years prior. And I called her up. Her schedule was open. I checked with the school. They had the budget. And she was 
pretty much my full-time accompanist for the junior high choir that I had. And then the first week of school, a sophomore student who was a phenomenal piano player approached me and said to me, you know, Mr. Rue, I really don't want to sing in choir, but I would like to play piano for you. And Matt then became my full-time accompanist for my high school choir. And it didn't take me long to learn the principle that our text leads us to this morning, that when God calls us to something, He calls us out of our insecurities, and He calls us out of our inabilities, and calls us to trusting rather in His sufficiency. So if there's any overarching principle this morning, it is that God is totally sufficient for everything that He asks us to do. And we find that in three different ways. The first is that we need to view God as He reveals Himself. View God as He reveals Himself. Now imagine with me that you had written a biography, and you had written about your family, you had written about your place of origin, your upbringing, uh, you, maybe your schooling, your past experiences, your personality, your likes, and your dislikes. And then I meet you, and I say, I read your book. I really, really enjoyed it. And in our conversation, I start insinuating things about you that aren't necessarily true. I misrepresent your family. I misrepresent and relate experiences that aren't accurate. I totally get your likes and your dislikes wrong. Uh, Your personality? Hey, I just make it all up. It's obvious that I have totally extrapolated a reality on you that doesn't exist. Yet you've revealed yourself plainly, and I have disregarded uh, that and chose to place an identity on you uh, of my own choosing. How would you feel about that? Would you be insulted? Would you feel belittled? Maybe uncared for? You would probably ask, well, did you even read my biography? Yet that is often the matter in which we approach God. It doesn't matter that God has specifically revealed Himself. We would rather have a God of our choosing and in our likeness rather than the God who actually exists. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is confronted by God. And when Moses meets God, For who he truly is, he finds that God is both terrifying and beautiful at the same time. And that is very good news for us. Now, remember where we're at here in redemptive history. Uh, The Hebrews have been in Egypt for about 400 years. They are enslaved by Pharaoh. Moses was a Hebrew who was raised in Pharaoh's household. However, now Moses is in Midian because he had to flee for his life after he murdered an Egyptian while trying to save a Hebrew man from abuse. He goes to Midian, he settles down, he gets married, he has children, and now he is a shepherd for his father-in-law out in Midian. And in his mind, this is it. 
This is where he's going to spend the rest of his life. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to die after living a great life working for his father-in-law. Little did he know, though, that God was preparing this shepherd of the sheep to eventually become the shepherd of God's flock. Now, look with me in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. Now, undoubtedly, Moses, having lived and worked out in the wilderness, Moses had no doubt seen a bush on fire before. But this was unlike any brush fire that he had ever seen. uh, Usually, the branches are what is fueling the fire in order to keep it going. But here, this fire is self-sustaining. It needs no external fuel. And here it is, burning. And it's here that we see perhaps the most important thing about God that we can think about, that God is holy, that God is holy. Look at verses uh, uh, 4 through 6 here in chapter 3. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, the Lord called out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place that you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. You know, there is something that is both attractive and repulsive about a fire. We like fire, especially us guys. When something's burning, we want to go check it out because it's really cool to watch something burn. But fire's also repulsive in a way because it's so dangerous. We don't want to get too close or we'll get burned. We won't let kids come anywhere near a fire lest they fall or not know what they're getting themselves into. And it's here that Moses is obviously attracted to this fire. And it's obvious that this fire is the Lord himself. And he calls out to Moses. Now, keep in mind here at this point that there is no established Israelite religion yet. Joseph had been off the scene for 400 years. Israel had been under slavery of Egypt uh, and under the influence of a pantheistic religious system of Egypt. Moses may have heard of this God before, He may have heard of Abraham, may have heard of Isaac, may have heard of Jacob. But we're talking 400 years. And he had no experience with this God. Yet God calls to him 
out of this bush. And before Moses can even approach him, God instructs him to take off his sandals because God is so holy that even the environment that he is in becomes sanctified in his very presence. So what does it mean then to be holy? We can see sort of what it means by Moses' reaction. Notice that the text doesn't even say whether or not Moses took off his shoes because he was too busy hiding from God. And Moses' reaction here is similar to others who are in the Bible, that when sinful people encounter a holy God, they're utterly terrified. We see it in Adam. After he and Eve sin, what do they do? They go and they hide from God. They don't want God to see them. You see Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he is in the throne room of God and he realizes who he's in front of and he says, woe is me. He senses his impending doom. Gideon, John in Revelation, falls on his face as if dead when he encounters the risen Christ in all of his glory. So what this tells us, that holiness of God, is that He's set apart. He is unlike us in every way. He is pure, and His purity, when He looks upon us, exposes all of our impurities. He is majestic, He is transcendent, and in a way, He is terrifying. We have this sense in the modern world that God is nothing more than Mr. Rogers with a beard, and that He wants to be our buddy, that He just wants to be our friend, our chum. And we refuse to believe in a God who, at first encounter, is utterly terrifying. It is only when we truly understand God is holy, that we can also see Him as good. Now, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe again, um, they're talking about Aslan, who is the Christ figure, and he is this lion. And Mr. Beaver is having a conversation with Susan, and uh, the, the beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. Now, Lewis understood the dichotomy here between God's holiness and its relation to his goodness. And Moses found that out here too. In verses 4 through 6, God presented himself as holy, Set apart. But look how he presents himself in verses 7 through 9. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, Peri- the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression 
with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God is totally unlike us. He's totally holy. But yet, He is good. And He cares. A.W. Tozer, in the opening line of his fantastic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So how do you think about God? Is He just your buddy? Does He agree with every single thing that you do? Is He very distant? Is He very near? And where do you get that thought from? Is He a God that you have created in your own mind and in your own image? Or is He the God that has revealed Himself in His Word? If you're a Christian today, does the thought of meeting God at least make you tremble a little bit? God is holy, but He's also good. And He hears the cry of His people in Egypt. And He hears your cry through Jesus Christ. So we need to first view God as He reveals Himself. But the second thing is that we need to trade our deficiencies for His sufficiency. Trade your deficiencies for God's total sufficiency. Have you ever thought that you may have something in common with Tom Hanks? Uh, Tom Hanks suffers from something called imposter syndrome. And what imposter syndrome is, it is the concept that describes individuals who don't recognize their success and who are plagued with this internal fear that at any moment people are going to uh, believe that they are complete frauds. Uh, Hanks, in light of all the accomplishments that he has had, said in a recent interview, no matter what we've done, there comes a point when you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me? Actress Emma Watson actually has the same sentiment. She said, it's almost like the better that I do, the more my feeling of inadequacy actually increases because I'm just going, at any moment, someone's going to find out I'm a total fraud and that I don't deserve any of what I've achieved. You know, when we encounter a holy God for who He truly is, He not only draws us to Himself, but He also points us outward on mission. And whatever way He calls us uh, to do that, we often feel the same sort of imposter syndrome that Hanks and Watson uh, do. We fall into all sorts of insecurities and all kinds of insufficiencies in our mind that would preclude us from doing that which God has called us to do, and that maybe God is actually in the wrong for calling us to do uh, what He has called us. And in a way, we may be absolutely right. None of us are qualified to do what God has called us to do. But that's the very point. I said it last week and I'll say it again. God does not call the equipped, He equips the called. 
Now look at the mission that God puts in front of Moses here in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. (laughs) Who in the world is qualified to do what God is asking Moses to do here. You might say, well, obviously Moses is, and I would say, I think you're wrong. Never does God say, Moses, hold on, you're being hard on yourself here, Moses. I wouldn't have called you unless you had everything that I need. Have confidence in yourself. Come on, Moses, you can do it. No. It's alluded here that God actually thinks that Moses has legitimate concerns in his complaints here. And he calls Moses to trade his deficiencies for God's sufficiencies. And like many of us, Moses protests on the basis of negative past experiences. Here's a guy that's been burned by ministry in the past. Remember that when he was in Egypt and he tried to protect that Hebrew person from the, from the oppression of the Egyptian, that Acts chapter 7 tells us that Moses prematurely believed that he was going to save all the Hebrews by doing this. That by stepping into this conflict, murdering this Egyptian, Moses saw himself as a savior, as sort of a Messiah, a deliverer that would spark a revolution and save God's people. Instead, what he got was exiled into Midian. He was trying to do something good, and it was a terrible experience. And like many of us, he looks back on those experiences and he says, nope, 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 never again. No, that experience was way too much. It was way too hard. There was way too much pain. There's no way I'm going back there and doing what you are calling me to do. His negative experience has beaten him down to the point that he no longer thinks that he can do anything good for the kingdom of God. And perhaps his excuses sound familiar. Look in, verses, in verse 311. He asks the question, Who am I? In verse 11, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? So Moses feels inadequate because of his weaknesses. God is calling him to go before the most powerful man in the entire world. And he says to God, Have you seen me? I'm a failure, I'm just a shepherd. My past is, is, is grounded in scandal. I'm wanted in Egypt. Who am I to do this? Notice in, in verse 13, Moses brings up the excuse that he lacks the knowledge or the ability to do it. In verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? So this is insufficient knowledge. He's concerned he doesn't have enough education, enough experience. He's encountered God, but God is still sort of a mystery. And these people that he's going to, they don't know who God is. What do they expect me to do, God? Go tell them that I found a man in a bush? 
Boy, if that's not a little weird, how many of us think that we can't do what God is calling us to do because we aren't Bible scholars or because we don't have enough experience? Well, notice also in in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses gives the, the argument of, what if they don't believe me? Or what if they don't accept me? Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they won't believe me or listen to my voice, for they, they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Moses has a fear of failure. He thinks he knows what's going to happen. And this is, I think, related to his past failure, and he's more concerned with how people are going to react to him than he is with God being with him. In chapter 4, verse 10, he gives the the question of limitations. Look with me in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. You know, we don't know exactly what Moses' issue was, but it's possible that he had some sort of speech disability. Moses thinks, though, that he has the right to determine whether or not God's call is valid based on his uh, perception of his own self-awareness. I've got this issue, God, and it's not going to help me. I don't have the tools. I don't have the skill set to do what you're asking. It's not going to work. Now look in verse 13. He goes to the final argument here. In verse 13, he says, Oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. Just do whatever you're going to do. Just get away from me. Send someone else. Someone else would be better. Moses' last excuse here is that there's got to be somebody else better than me. God, you must be mistaken. I appreciate you thinking of me. Out of all the people of the world, thank you for thinking about me, but I know myself better than you do. I'm no good for you. Why don't you go and you go find someone else? As much as we want to put off or put away God's call on our lives, God mercifully entreats us to see how our insufficiencies aren't made right intrinsically in ourselves, but rather in God alone. When Moses questions his identity, notice God doesn't put him off or he doesn't puff up Moses' self-esteem He puffs up Moses' God esteem. What is his response to Moses saying, Who am I? Look in verse 12 of chapter 3. He said, But I will be with you. What is God's answer to Moses saying, I'm nobody? God says, Doesn't matter. I'm with you. And if I'm with you, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your present. It doesn't matter your future. If I am with you, that is all that you need. Is God, going to, is God being with you sufficient for you? Trade your identity for God's presence. When Moses questions his knowledge or his ability, God assures Moses that it's not Moses' ability that matters. What matters is God's power. Look at chapter 3, starting in verse 13. If I come to the people and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? 
What shall I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am who sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying... I have observed what's been done to you in Egypt, and I promise I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now go, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor... And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Moses has no education. He has no ability. God simply asks Moses just to go and watch what will happen. Are you trusting in your ability are you trusting in what, um, are you trusting yourself to do what only God can do? Or do you lack confidence because you think that it is up to you? Trade it for his sovereignty. When Moses worries about whether they will believe him or accept him, God assures him that it's not Moses' eloquence, it's not his wisdom, it's not his reason that will sway them, but God's power. Look at chapter 4 and verses 1 through 9. Moses answered, they're not going to believe me or listen to my voice. They'll say to me, the Lord didn't appear to you. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, became a staff, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to you again. The Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put it inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back in your cloak. So he put it back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they won't believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. Are you afraid of failing or losing face? Or how to handle rejection or adversity? Trade it for God's power. 
When Moses questioned God on his limitations, his disability, God in verse 11 says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Notice then that God didn't downplay Moses' disability. He doesn't say, Moses, it isn't that bad. If you just try or try harder, it's not that big of a deal. Rather, God actually acknowledges it here and asks Moses to rest his disability in his hands and let God use it to see whatever happens. And when Moses says that someone else would be probably a better idea, God at first gets angry with Moses because Moses is now really not looking at his deficiencies, but he's accusing God of having a deficiency. You don't know what you're talking about, God. You obviously don't know me, but God provides help. In verses 14 through 17, God sends Aaron, said that he will send Aaron to speak on his behalf. So in light of all these insufficiencies and insecurities, God is continuing to give Moses and us reasons why we can respond favorably to God and go in confidence to serve Him. You know, maybe you are in a season like Moses before he came to this burning bush. You're going about your life having no clue that God may be preparing you for something. But at some point, we are all going to have our burning bush moment. And when we encounter God for who He is, and He calls us to do something, could be in the church, it could be in the community, it could be in the world, but He will call, we can go confidently into it because God who calls is the God who sustains and is the God who equips. And though we can have a thousand seemingly plausible excuses on why we uh, are completely insufficient for the task, we can't let imposter syndrome get the best of us. We can't let it take seed in our heart. We may not be sufficient. In fact, we probably aren't sufficient. But we must trade those deficiencies for God's sufficiencies. He is able to work through whatever it is for His glory if we trust Him with the work. And that is actually our our third point. And that is that we need to trust God with the results. Trust God with the results. In chapter 4, verse 18, Moses finally acquiesces. He, he gets permission from his father-in-law, who is his employer, goes back to Egypt. He doesn't really tell his father-in-law his real reason for going back to Egypt, but he's on his way by faith. And God continues to reassure him. Verse 19, he tells him, you know what? Pharaoh's dead. The one that's looking for you, you can go. You're not a fugitive. In verse 21, he provides power for Moses. In verse 27, he actually sends Aaron into the wilderness. Notice here, it doesn't say that Moses sent Aaron an email. Didn't send him a text message saying, hey, I'm going out to the desert. Will you meet me? God sovereignly comes to Aaron and says, go meet your brother out in the wilderness. And they go to Egypt together. They gather the elders. Aaron speaks. Moses does the, brings the, the thunder with the, the miracles. And what happens? 
all of Moses' fears realized? No. God provides the results. Look in verse 31. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So here was a God that was completely foreign to Moses. He was an insecure man who thought his purpose in life had been fulfilled. And God took this insufficient man and asked him to trust him that he would provide everything that he needs. And here he is now ready to go in front of the most powerful man in the world and ask him to give up his free labor force. You know, Moses' story is also your story. And it's also my story. By nature, God is completely foreign to us. We are unlike Him. We are unholy. We are unequipped. And we are unwilling. But God in His grace and in His mercy calls us not out of a burning bush, but out of a bloody cross. And we must rightly emphasize that on the cross, a holy God offered forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But we also not ought to forget that on that cross, Christ died to relieve us of our bondage to our insufficiencies and freed us to serve Him wholeheartedly knowing that we are completely incapable of doing what He asks us to do, but knowing that what God requires, God also provides. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called, and He equips them in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what God's calling you today. I don't know what he will call you to do. Maybe it's making a difficult phone call. Maybe it's having a conversation. Maybe it's a new responsibility, a new job. Maybe it's letting go of something. I don't know. But what I do know is that when we hear the Lord knocking on the door, we ought not to hide in the room and hope that he goes on to the next house. Our text calls us to know the Lord, to know His terror, but know His goodness, and to respond to Him, to stop the excuses and trade our deficiencies for His sufficiency and sovereignty and follow Him in faith. And that's ultimately what this is all about. Are you going to trust Him In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Do you believe that? You know, I was really reluctant to take that teaching position. But I'm thankful that I did because not only did it provide for us financially when we were new in our marriage, but I learned so much about how good God is that He can show His power through our weakness and how He is completely sufficient to meet all of our needs. 
Again, maybe God's calling you to care for someone difficult. Maybe he's calling you to adopt children or go into foster care. Maybe he's pushing you into mission. Maybe he's calling you to step up and save your marriage. Whatever it is, you may be totally scared today. You may be brushing God off. You may be ignoring him or feeling completely unqualified. Take time today to see God's holiness and his compassion His willingness to bear the weight and the work and the result for what he has called you to do. And trust him. He is worthy. He is the all-sufficient God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weak. You indeed are strong. And so, Father, I pray that wherever we're at this morning that we would trade all of our insecurities, all of our inabilities, and that we would run wholeheartedly to you and that we would serve you faithfully, fearfully, for your glory and the good of those you are calling to yourself, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as the worship team? leads us in one more song.